I'm one that's amazed by technology and continually interested in where it will go next. I've spent my entire career in this space. But the story about me that's interesting, well, really, it's not even my story. My mother-in-law found a different path to technology. She was a refugee fleeing a war zone, and she brought with her um, her daughters, one of which was four weeks old, and she came to this country not really knowing where she was going to go or what she was going to do, and she was given a choice whether she wanted to um, move to Chicago or move to Austin, and she said, which place is warm? And so Austin it was. She came at a very fortuitous time when Austin was becoming kind of the Silicon Hills sister of Silicon Valley and semiconductors were a very big technology industry. She was ultimately able to work in uh, a wafer fabrication facility. So she worked as a wafer fab tech. What makes this story profound, at least for me, is that I see my mother-in-law come to a new country, an unfamiliar place, she found a way to transform the lives of her and her family, kind of getting into this first wave of technological innovation that transformed our lives and brought us the internet. And here we are now as a society, kind of at this next jumping off point into the metaverse where this is gonna transform our lives in ways that are hard to predict. If I had a crystal ball, I would be able to tell you, but it's going to be a different world. The story of the metaverse is just being written. It's easy to think that story is about technology and the future. That's part of it. But as Ben Hoster just conveyed, it's really about people. Ben calls himself a technology realist. He started his career as a computer engineer and was immersed in Web 1.0 during the dot-com boom and Web 2.0 during the rise of social media. Today, he's the director of transformative technologies at Marsh McLennan, and he's my guest on This Moment Matters as we unpack the metaverse. I'm Eric Gustafson. You might expect that we're going to ask Ben what the metaverse is, and then he'll say what it is, and that's the show. But there are actually uncertainties about the metaverse. So if you feel there are things about it you don't get, there's a good chance you're not alone. In the interview, we'll define terms, explore Ben's background, and hear his insights on the risks in the metaverse. But the question I started with was, how can someone put forward real assets in a virtual world? When I think about this kind of futuristic virtual metaversian world, the real difference between what you and I are accustomed to today and what this future state world might look like is this idea of permanence. Like, you know, we think about all of the value of data. You can back it up on hard drives, you can do other things. And from big data accumulators and aggregators and how that data is used, how it's monetized, how it's packaged up and sold, and also how it's vulnerable to a cyber intrusion or a cyber event. And what usually happens in those events is that the data is still there right? But it's monetized in some way. It's ransomed. It's held hostage. It's used for other purposes. The scary thing about the future, where this could go, is that now this data has a singular 
entity. It is one thing. It is a Bitcoin. It is an NFT attached to a valuable piece of art, which has made this kind of one of a kind or a one of 10 or one of a few. And part of that scarcity is what creates that value. But if somebody takes that from you, it's gone. You've lost everything. And there are other kinds of failure modes. They're all hosted on platforms. We've seen the market change in crypto and overnight, multiple cryptocurrencies go underwater or go out of business. And the same could happen for some of the major platforms as well. So there's risk there. I think if I were to buy a piece of art or I were to have an investment, I would feel more confident in both of those things if it was tangible and therefore maybe protectable. When you're looking at the regulatory environment around banking or any kind of investment that you're likely to make, it's pretty rigorous. Um, Cryptocurrency feels a little bit like it's not clear what the regulatory environment is. What's missing? Uh, what needs to be strengthened and developed, whether Washington, Brussels, uh, London, in order to kind of make those assets feel a little bit safer for investors? I'm sure the people who are developing cryptocurrencies are interested in seeing some measure of regulation grow in order to kind of make potential investors feel more confident in the product. It's hard to regulate what doesn't fully exist yet. And as more and more value is created in this marketplace, uh, the need for regulation will become increasingly imperative. But even if you think about our laws in the physical world, real estate law, for example, has had to evolve with different types of models and for hundreds of years. And so I do see there's an existing kind of base, whether you're talking about the California Consumer Privacy Act or the um, General Data Protection Regulation The EU has been doing a lot of work recently, and towards the end of the year, there will be an AI Act that's proposed, and there's even a follow-on kind of AI Liability Act. So there's a body of regulation. You can see that that regulation has had to keep up with the trends in technology development from the time that the internet was established and jurisdictions were set around certain things. It's one of those things that we don't know what we don't know, but we can make some pretty intelligent forecasts based on what we're seeing now in terms of web 2.0 platforms and social media and privacy concerns. And so I think making existing regulations extensible to a metaversean world is quite important. And then recognizing that there are certainly going to be some curveballs, some gaps, especially as we start to try to wrap our minds and our business models around some of these things that are genuinely new that have not been part of the prior wave of internet commerce. Those instances will need specific focus because challenges will arise that we haven't thought about before. As the technology evolves and the commerce um, that it enables also evolves, we've seen the so-called web platform 1.0 to 2.0 to now 3.0. What are, you've just given an example in real estate, but what are some other examples? You know, one, I would argue, I don't even know that we're on the cusp of web 3.0 or whether it's web 2.1. Okay. Let me try to, to give you a feel for how this evolution has worked. I mean, we're all familiar with the advent of the information superhighway and web 1.0, and we've all lived the evolution to web 2.0, which truly was transformative. And I think of web 2.0 as platforms, 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 Mm -hmm. whether it's 
a social media platform, an e-commerce platform, but you see these massive technology organizations that aggregate large amounts of information and data and find ways to monetize it. A side effect of a lot of this data accumulation is that it's created some power disparities across the ecosystem of participants, whether it's a large video sharing or music sharing platform. When we start to think about Web 3.0, and there are a lot of underlying technologies, but the real Web 3.0 promise is decentralization, which theoretically could re-equilibrate this power disparity across the value chain. Now, that decentralization is predicated upon certain technologies that create this notion of what I think of as distributed trust, which means we can have a contract, we can have a currency, we can have any number of things between the two of us that I don't necessarily need to know who you are, what you are. If we have an agreement around orchestrating a certain transaction, then I'm kind of protected by some of these technologies. I can trust you without having to know exactly who you are, what you are. Sure. I mean, in the pre-internet age, I walk into a market, I'm going to buy some eggs and I hand you a scrap of paper that the government that we both live under agrees there's value in that piece of paper. And so there's a shared assumption. The gain from exchange is there, right? You get a dollar, I get an egg or two, whatever the number is. You move that into a digital environment. The transactions are sort of like a digital version of one that is still familiar. It's a credit card transaction, or then ultimately it becomes sort of a PayPal Venmo type thing, perhaps. And you're starting to try to take these large institutions out of the equation and make it a straight individual to individual transaction that is valid because there's a shared agreement that there's value in the cryptocurrency that's moving forward, or there is understood scarcity in the NFT that's moving between participants. Is that a fair summary of it? That's an excellent summary. And and what I would, the only thing I would add to that, Eric, is that there's now a sense of permanence, Mm -hmm. whether it's an NFT tagged piece of artwork, a digital avatar, a virtual space. These have all been kind of defined across the blockchain. They can be assessed, verified, audited from any number of sources. And this idea of digital permanence now exists. So a little fun fact, right? (laughs) If you roll it back a few generations, one in three Gen Z today believe that their online identity is their most authentic self. One in three. If you look at later generations like mine, Gen X, that number is like one in 10. So clearly there's a generational divide and a disparity in kind of how much value some are already willing to place in this virtual world. So let's talk a little bit about the various terms that an individual needs to know in order to try and understand what the metaverse is and can possibly become. We've already covered a couple of them, NFTs, crypto. I think blockchain is a pretty important concept since it underrides so much of it. But then there are other terms that are out there, smart contracts, XR, augmented reality, uh, mixed reality, et cetera. What's the glossary people need? I think... For this conversation, it's important to say there are so many technologies that are involved. You and I could talk about it for hours. So acknowledging before I start that this is an oversimplification, let's go with that simplified view. I think about technologies in two layers, if you will. There's functional tech, which enables the types of transactions, the types of things that you would build in the metaverse. 
And then there's immersion technologies, these technologies that bring you into the experience and make you feel the presence of the experience. And this can be all of your senses, your sight, your hearing, your feeling with technologies that interact with your body. And so if we step through those functional tech first and blockchain being the most important of them, because the others are kind of derived from blockchain, the way that I think about blockchain, just imagine when the personal computer came out in the early 80s. The first personal computer was worse at almost every single metric than the kind of tried and true mainframe at the time, except for one. You could take a personal computer to your home. Blockchain is no different. Blockchain is basically a database or ledger technology that records transactions in a way that's inferior in most ways to existing technology and processes except for one. And that one is this notion of a distributed ledger or a distributed trust. Blockchain is a digital record keeping system where information, once it's recorded, it's immutable. It can't be modified, deleted. That permanence is so critical to making digital products, whether it's a cryptocurrency or a piece of artwork or a virtual space permanent and having them be worth more money than just kind of what you might draw on a web 2.0 platform. So blockchain is the core of that. And from blockchain, we can derive cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, like Ethereum, and those cryptocurrencies can be used to consummate transactions in the digital space. But it's important to recognize that these aren't the end-all be-all way of orchestrating financial transactions. There's still traditional fiat currency and credit cards the way we've always used them. And there's kind of an in-between state, which is a stable coin, which is pegged to a fiat currency like the US dollar. You've mentioned NFTs or non-fungible tokens. These are essentially the Bitcoin equivalent of affixing this kind of unique modifier to a piece of artwork, a piece of music, a piece of digital real estate, whatever, that then can make that one of a kind or one of very few create some of that scarcity and allow the creator of that product to sell it for whatever folks are willing to pay for it. So that's kind of the first layer of technology. The next is what I call these immersion technologies. So this is augmented reality, virtual reality, mixed reality, internet of things, edge computing, artificial intelligence, and all of these technologies can help bring you into that screen, into that virtual headset. Imagine what we could do if we all had our headsets on and how we could be engaging with one another virtually, but feeling like that presence that we're actually there together. Talk to me a little bit about avatars. My kids have them. I don't really understand them. Every time I try and create one for myself, my hair doesn't look right, or it's got some goofy kind of cartoon thing that just doesn't feel like me. And so naturally, I either have like, you know, no avatar or some horribly business driven photo of myself with a suit. And it's like the least authentic thing, right? But I'm told that they're really important. Why are they? How should I be thinking about them? How should everybody else be thinking about them? It's funny, Eric, you and I have touched on this generational divide. It depends upon who you ask what's important about an avatar. If you ask my son, he would say that it's absolutely about being goofy and different than who you are 
in the physical world. If I described his avatar to you, you'd just start laughing. I laugh just looking at it. But let's bring more of a business lens on this. I think it's a combination of a few things. It's having an avatar, virtual representation of yourself, and then the environment that you put that avatar in. We've all kind of hit the pandemic uh, fatigue zone of sitting on a Zoom call with a four by four fishbowl of faces staring back at us. We've all attended virtual conferences and recognized that the opportunities for networking, the opportunities for real Q&A, the opportunities for having off-the-cuff conversations don't exist in those virtual environments, or even when you're trying to manufacture them on Zoom calls, they don't work as well as we would like. It's not as seamless as showing up at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, and being able to just organize spontaneous conversations with people at Boost that you find interesting. There's something really different about taking your avatar and putting it in a virtual space where you can interact with others on whiteboards, in conference rooms, in different formats than you can just when you're confined to pointing and clicking from here to there. And there are ways too, through mixed reality and augmented reality that you can also still interact with the physical world. You could have your hands on a keyboard typing. You could have your hand on a dry erase marker on a whiteboard still working, but everybody else, regardless of where they are, can see what you're doing. And so I think it's that presence that really changes things, that takes things from the web 2.0 world that we've kind of been living in for the last decades into a new space where we can now interact with individuals, other colleagues and professionals an ocean away in ways that kind of bring us together and make us feel like we're actually in the same room. And that kind of virtual presence can go even farther than just how we interact with one another. It can help us design things, think about things, and build things. Ben is a Texan, born and raised. His great-great-great-grandfather was one of the first Supreme Court justices of Texas back when Texas was a country. His grandmother was the first female superintendent of schools in the state of Texas. In college, he studied biochemistry, which he put to use as a chemist in the computer chip manufacturing business, working in areas like photolithography and plasma chemistry. I asked Ben how he came to Oliver Wyman, the paths that have taken him from the nuts and bolts of tech to today advising people about cutting edge information technologies. Uh, I mean, it, it all started in semiconductors. That's where I kind of got bit with the technology bug, if you will. I worked as a semiconductor engineer in kind of the first phase of my career. I went back to school, got my MBA, and ultimately went into technology consulting. And as you mentioned, with Oliver Wyman in our digital practice for quite some time. I'm very focused on family, as you can tell from some of my other examples, and I really wanted to travel less and focus on technology in a bit of a different way, which is kind of how I land in my role today, looking across all of Marsh McLennan businesses, thinking about the implications of transformative technologies, the applied research that I do, kind of all at the intersection of risk, strategy, and people. I've seen 
firsthand the power of technology to transform lives. And I was always just wide-eyed, amazed at the sheer scale of the small in semiconductors and how back then 60 million plus transistors could be fit on a small piece of silicon. And now that number has changed orders of magnitude over. And these technologies are now enabling incredible use cases or business models that I could have never, none of us could have imagined back in our analog days. And while I've seen all of this, I also, and especially when I think about the metaverse, I really try to apply a lens of realism to it. Because if we think about semiconductors, yes, it can create a lot of jobs, but sometimes those jobs have different skills. Um, Sometimes those jobs move overseas, offshore. Yes, all of this technology creates the power to really connect with other human beings in very meaningful ways, but it also creates the power to isolate. And I really worry about what that might look like in a metaversian world. And you know, as these technologies become essential to everything, they also mean that everything is vulnerable to cyber threats, cyber intrusion, and the like. And I think these will only become more amplified in the metaverse. And so it's probably worth talking about those for a bit. So is the question essentially, where's the risk in this? You know, we've talked a good bit about the strategy and people aspect of it. Looking across the core strengths of Marsh McLennan, that's a pretty important part. And as the world and the business world in particular turns to new technologies, blockchain, the metaverse and the like, there are new risks. How are you thinking about the risks and what advice do you have for our listeners? Things can go wrong. If I really want to dive headfirst, into the metaverse and get my avatar set up just the way I want, have a cryptocurrency or a digital wallet, essentially establish a virtual me. Things can be stolen from you. If somebody finds a way to get your NFT encryption, you're done. You've just lost. If something's stolen, if something's gone, it's gone. There are other risks as well around mental well-being and how we spend time with our virtual selves versus our physical selves. And there's also risk for all of the technology providers, retail providers, and companies, because as more and more of these stories come to be, there's brand risk, there's reputational risk for not helping protect consumers and customers. There's personal data privacy risk. So lots of things that we really have to think about in this future state world. Cyber is even more critical than you might think of it today. Today, when I think about a cyber threat, I'm usually thinking about what will be done with that information. Will it be held ransom? Will it be sold and then misused with ill intent? But now the threats are multifold. So with more technology, with edge devices, with other facets that all have to come together to make this virtual reality feel real. There are many, many more entry points, many more threat vectors, if you will, that become exposed. And back to the permanence conversation, it's no longer how my data will be used. It's when it's gone, it's gone. There's no kind of hard drive backup that works for this. If someone steals something, You can't reproduce it. I'm not saying don't jump in with both feet. It's this balance between technology evangelism and technology realism. And I'm a realist. The same way that 
when the information superhighway first came out and there were all of these struggles that we were having with whether or not we felt comfortable putting our credit cards online, whether they were secure. And then again, later as platforms came out, we struggled with misinformation and disinformation. There are going to be a new set of risks in this new world. This world's coming one way or another. And it's really about how to prepare for those risks and how to manage them in a way that's secure and healthy. So Ben, we understand a little bit more kind of the glossary and some of the potential future vision for a metaversian and environment. How do we bring that into the business world in a really quantifiable way so that there's true investment flowing into all of these technologies, both to enhance the technologies, but also, as you were mentioning a moment ago, to really draw people into the metaverse? What needs to change? So, you know, it's it's interesting. There's this fundamental need to kind of balance and enable innovation while also preventing harm. And, you know, let's just take an example in real estate, because once we start to figure out how to strike that balance, you'll start to see, I think, even more investment than you see now, but you'll see real businesses kind of come in and start to participate in this environment. And if I think about real estate, a lot of examples in the physical world are somewhat extensible into the virtual world, property rights and transferability. What are the similarities between the two realms? They exist today. You may need a virtual architect, uh, but somebody has to design the property, right? And while you might be using wood and nails in the physical world, you're using one zeros and 3D rendering in the metaverse. The key questions are still there. Who owns property rights? Who owns the right to the design of the property? Who owns the actual product, the virtual space? What are your rights to, you know, whether or not you want to rent it or what if you want to renovate or upgrade it and how are these transferable? And the answer to that is, you know, with the NFTs that we were talking about earlier, and you can sell those when they're affixed to a certain thing. There are even more questions. Today, we have kind of fair use doctrine that governs how imagery and different types of representations of physical space are used. How does that work in the metaverse? Where does liability lie for, say, unlawful or illegal content policing on NFT sales platforms? If somebody tries to misrepresent your virtual real estate or maybe counterfeit it by changing a couple pixels, what are the legal recourse for that kind of threat? What do you think is the most important of them, right? What's the public policy or the legal precedent that we have to set now, get right now in order for more investment to flow in this space? I think the first thing is just to have concrete starting point for regulation, right? There are so many unanswered questions. They're not necessarily easily answered, but a good starting point would be, how do we treat these concepts in the physical world today? Because many of them, probably 75, 80% of the future cases are extensible into the metaverse. I think that's the most important first step. Ben is the Director of Transformative Technologies at Marsh McLennan. He spoke to us from his home in Austin, Texas. This Moment Matters is produced by Marsh McLennan with Connected Social Media. I'm Eric Gustafson. Thanks for listening.